Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, uh, and thank you very much for your valuable time. I'm just conscious of uh, the fact that it's the evening, and obviously, once again, um, things are changing ever rapidly. Um, obviously, the Prime Minister has made further announcements today, which we'll uh, look forward to uh, hearing more about, and obviously, uh, some of those measures that are coming in will help people with practices. I'm conscious that we are aware of the fact there's been a bit of a downturn uh, in some general practices, and I think some of the measures will be of benefit. So I think next week, once we see the legislation, we'll organise um, a, a call with relation to uh, what they might mean for, for general practice. But here today, we're here to do a COVID update with Professor David Wilkinson. So for those who may or may not be aware, um, David is a, uh, a his master's in uh, epidemiology at Cornell, the United States, uh, you know, specifically focusing on infectious diseases. So he has uh, unique uh, knowledge and skills and uh, is, you know, once again, a participant in the government briefings, et cetera. So definitely as far as somebody that can help disseminate the information that's coming through and put it in a meaningful form for us. So uh, David, can I pass over to you? <clears throat> thanks. Thanks very much, Paul. And um, good evening to everybody that's on the on the video conference. And as always, it's a, a great pleasure for me to to join in and um, contribute to our understanding of this extraordinary uh, pandemic. Um, as Paul indicated, just just very briefly by way of background, uh, my by training, uh, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I have what some people would consider a morbid curiosity about this particular pandemic, and I'm following it in excruciating detail through my position at the university. As Paul said, um, I'm part of a group that is being briefed directly by <coughs> chief health officers around Australia as we. Um, do a lot of work at university level to um, react uh, to this situation. So it's a pleasure for me to try and share with you um, some of the key stuff that's going on. What I'd, what I'd like to do is just spend hopefully no more than 10 minutes to give everybody a quick update on the, on the pandemic, uh, particularly as it applies to us in Australia. Um, try and understand what the heck is going on and how it is affecting all of us and then leave the rest of the time for your questions. So at a high level, I mean, things have changed massively in the week since we did our first webinar this time last week. Um, amazing how much, how much can happen. And there are now over 4,000, around about 4,000 cases in Australia. Um, in New South Wales, where I am, uh, we have the, the, the largest burden by far, almost half the cases are here. Uh, because of the size of the population, but also because, of course, most international travellers arrive in Sydney and we have the uh, dubious <coughs> honour of receiving many cruise ships and lots and lots of sick people have been coming off those cruise ships uh, into New South Wales. Um, in the world now, we're well over 650,000 cases and 30,000 deaths. There have been, I think the latest number of deaths in Australia is so far very small, thankfully, 18, uh, 18 cases, I think, and uh, I think nine or 10 deaths now uh, in New South Wales. The epidemic is growing, obviously. Uh, there are more and more cases, and that is completely to be expected. What's important 
to appreciate is that the very large majority of these cases are imported cases. These are travellers who have returned to Australia uh, or the contacts of, of those travellers. So um, certainly more than two thirds, uh, if not three quarters of these cases uh, fit into that category. There are a small number of clusters of contacts of these people um, and then there are a small number now of community transmission um, cases in Australia. What is really interesting is <clears throat> that the number of new cases um, is uh, stabilizing. Now it's too early to say at all, um, much too early to say that the epidemic is coming under any control. But there is a feeling amongst chief health officers that the interventions put in place two weeks ago in Australia are starting to show effect and that's encouraging. So the epidemic curve that we are seeing as we plot the number of cases each day and the number of cumulative cases is starting to level off. Um, again, uh, it's not the end at all. Um, but the pattern we are seeing is the pattern you want to see at this stage. Um, we all saw over the weekend uh, the additional restrictions on movement, uh, social distancing, etc. Uh, it will take another two weeks for the full effect of all of that to come into play. But there is a sense that what we are doing is starting to work. The borders are now effectively closed, as you all know. People who return to Australia um, now go into mandatory quarantine for 14 days. Uh, that means there will be no new imported cases into Australia and um, the health authorities now have a chance to identify all of the cases, all of the contacts um, of those cases um, treat and isolate those those people and the effort is is underway now to minimize community uh, community spread it's it's important again for us all to remember why all of this is being done why the social and economic upheaval is happening and it is simply because if we don't do this and if the epidemic in Australia goes anything like it is in Italy, for example, the health system will just be completely overwhelmed and we will not be able to treat the number of people um, who will get sick to such a level that they need hospitalization, ICU and ventilation. So um, it's quite interesting. The uh, What I'm being told for New South Wales is that the uh, capacity for ICU beds and ventilation has uh, now doubled and quadrupled uh, respectively. Uh, the health system is gearing up uh, for um, uh, the, the anticipated possible very large number of very sick people. Um, so <clears throat> again, without any sense of the work is done at all, uh, there is a sense that um, the right things are being done and positive uh, impact is being, is being seen. I am asked all the time, how long will this last? Uh, the answer to that question, of course, is nobody knows. 
Um, <clears throat> I'm working on the assumption um, that we will be in the, the sort of position that we're all in now for at least a month. It uh, really needs two to three weeks to see how good the changes that have been made are. Um, we'll know that in you know two, three weeks' time, and then um, there is the possibility, if case numbers are falling, um, that the authorities may move to um, loosen some of the restrictions. Now, the problem, of course, is <clears throat> if they do that too early or too much, uh, there's a risk that the epidemic blows up again. Um, that's, that's the simple reality that is going to be faced with. So I'm assuming that we will all look like this for at least a month. It could get more severe lockdown um, for a period of time. And then you would imagine some form of restrictions for several more months. So at the university, we are assuming a month like this, three to four months, something like this, and many months of restrictions around social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. So just, just as an example, at Macquarie University, where I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor, and this is the same now in all Australian universities, all teaching is completely online. We have completely turned around our business model in 10 days. Um, and we don't expect that to change uh, anytime soon. Just an example of the, of the huge changes that are being required um, here. Um, just to wrap this session up, and then I, I can see there's a number of questions being, being posed. Um, we are uh, expecting more testing. Um, Australia is doing a lot of testing. Um, there are many tests being evaluated by the TGA at the moment. I, I believe it's 15 or 16 different tests. Um, we would expect many of those to be approved very quickly and made available much more quickly. Um, we need to test more and more people, obviously. Uh, case detection and contact tracing and isolation is really important. There are many drug trials underway around the world, testing av uh, currently available drugs, uh, repurposing them and seeing if they work uh, for COVID. And there are um, at least 30 vaccine trials uh, uh, planned and registered, some underway. There's a small number of vaccine trials that already have candidate vaccines in people doing uh, safety testing. Um, and it's, it's quite fascinating to see the, um, the speed of, of, of action in the scientific and medical uh, community. Um, the final thing I'll say for GPs and general practices, uh, clearly massive upheaval. Um, again, it's extraordinary as we heard uh, uh, over the weekend and clarified today that now telehealth is essentially available to all uh, people in Australia, all GPs in Australia, I mean, how many of us thought that was ever possible? Um, clearly, a range of important um, changes in our work practices in clinics around safety um, and protection of our staff and protection uh, of our patients. Uh, as the Prime Minister has made clear, as the Principal Medical Advisor to the Department, Professor Michael Kidd has made clear, uh, general practice is at the forefront of this response. 
absolutely essential work that is going on and not just in responding to COVID and potential COVID cases. Um, and again, there are only 4,000 in Australia at the moment, or have been. Um, that's plenty of, plenty of cases, but it's not massive yet. And let's hope it, it, it doesn't become massive. But they're all very keen that GP services continue. Um, general practices are completely essential services. Um, uh, they want us to use the, heli, the telehealth uh, items as much as we can, um, because of course that uh, limits the interaction, the face-to-face -face interaction. Um, it's a really good way to socially distance. But the Prime Minister and uh, the Health Minister, Minister Hunt, and the, the, the Principal Medical Advisor, Michael Kidd, um, all make it very, very clear that face-to-face -face, um, GP services of whatever type um, are vital, they're essential, um, they need to continue um, as, as, as best they can. So, um, Paul, I, I might stop there. I hope that's been a useful overview of the epidemiology of the epidemic, um, a sense of how long this might last for, and at least an opening on the impact uh, for general practice. And uh, very happy to take uh, as many questions as we've got. Beautiful. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, down the bottom of your Zoom frame, you'll see a Q&A box, which you are welcome to put questions in, and I will obviously try and filter them and pass them uh, onto David. Um, so, I mean, I suppose one, one of the questions you've got, David, and I'll just go through them. So, uh, how will I diagnose I suppose COVID without rapid response test kits or laboratory. I mean, is there any other method? Yeah, so I think I think um, te the, the testing criteria are changing all, all the time, and they started with you know, quite a restricted um, criteria to allow testing, simply because there weren't that many tests available. Um, and they had to start with the high-risk cases. They're expanding the case definition for testing quite rapidly. Um, my view would be if you have somebody that you suspect may have COVID, that you direct them to a facility that can do uh, COVID testing. Um, they, have, they are setting up respiratory clinics um, in different parts of the country through the primary health networks. There are, there's one just down the road from me here in North Sydney. Uh, I would direct um, patients for testing to these primary care respiratory clinics. I wouldn't be doing it myself. However, these new tests, the rapid tests that, that are, 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 are soon to be available, um, offer obviously a very different uh, route for methodology. We need to see what the TGA authorises and we need to see whether these are diagnostic uh, in the acute phase of infection. Uh, or whether they're diagnostic, um, you know, after uh, infection. So um, I think it's a case of a, a lot of that will become clearer this week. And I mean, so how many tests are needed to confirm full recovery? So the current, the current situation um, is a, a nasopharyngeal swab for diagnosis that will shift into a blood test with um, IgM and IgA antibodies. Um, at, at the moment, the recommendations are uh, around um, symptom recovery and depending on the patient's status, 
whether they need to show um, absence of, of, of viral load. So again, this is why I would recommend that um, uh, suspect cases are, are managed through one of the uh, specialist respiratory clinics at this stage. The caseload is low enough for that to occur. Okay, I've got a few questions here around obviously various drugs that could be used to treat the virus. I mean, are you aware of any drugs that are currently available that can be used? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot of interest in a, in a range of drugs. Um, there are some quite interesting case reports um, coming from around the world as doctors try different things. Uh, there's quite a bit of interest in uh, chloroquine, particularly in combination with azithromycin. Um, the advice in Australia, which I would strongly recommend that we follow, is that these drugs should not be used outside of the hospital setting. I think it's our responsibility as GPs to um, identify uh, patients at risk, patients with possible diagnoses, get them, get them diagnosed, and then if, um, uh, if they are sick enough to warrant hospitalization, and let's remember, you know, 80% of, of people will, will have mild illness or no symptoms. And there is increasing evidence that many, many, many more people are asymptomatic. Um, there's only a small, small number, small proportion require hospitalization and um, trials are underway and the uh, hospital-based specialists um, will we'll try these drugs out in, in a controlled hospital setting. Awesome. Um, so, what, so can we give clear advice to patients about quarantine or self-isolation? So what is the <coughs> recommendation? Yeah, so, which we yeah certainly. So, so the 14-day rule is, is the good rule of thumb. Uh, where does that come from? Well, we know now quite clearly that the average uh, duration uh, of incubation is actually five days so you know some people get symptoms really quickly after infection uh, others it takes a little bit longer and the 14 day period um, is essentially a guarantee so if you are exposed to somebody with covid and you go into self-isolation then uh, you have no symptoms within 14 days, you are not infected. So it, the 14 day rule is, is the one um, to hold on to. I know uh, a number of people, I have a number of colleagues and friends who are in self-isolation um, and that's the protocol that, that should be followed. Um, of course, for returning travelers before the weekend, they were under strict self-isolation and now, uh, for returning travellers, it is mandatory uh, quarantine again for 14 days. And essentially, 14 days is a guarantee um, that if you have been exposed and you get no symptoms in that time, you are not infected. Okay. Um, question around CPAP machines working as ventilators. Yeah. Well, they're trying. They're they're trying a whole range of of things at the moment, and um, you, you know. I, I, my, my attitude here is let's hope we never have to get to that situation. Um, there are something like 2,200 ICU beds in Australia, or there were before COVID. 
Um, all health departments are have been working hard to double that capacity. I know that has occurred in New South Wales and to quadruple the ventilation capacity. So you can ventilate a patient with ha without having them in ICU. So if you think roughly 4,000 ICU beds, roughly 8,000 ventilators, um, that's a lot of capacity. And if we do everything that we're all doing now, we won't need it. So this is all about buying time to make sure that we, we don't need it. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers for New South Wales today, but when I looked at it yesterday, I think we had about 10 patients in ICU and three or four of them were on ventilators. So hopefully we won't have to get into that sort of desperate um, uh, setting and situation. There have been stories in the press today you know that the vets are vets are giving up their animal ventilators for human use um, that's fantastic but if we get to that kind of position then all of the self-isolation and all of the quarantine and all of the border restrictions um, ha have not worked and and all of the intent here is to make sure that we have a situation with coronavirus whereby the people who do require hospitalization and it's about 20 percent um, so you know if you if you looked at round figures for Australia uh, 4,000 cases right so maybe 800 require hospitalization but it's only five percent uh, require ICU care right so it's only a few tens of patients might require ICU and then ventilation. So, so hopefully we won't get anywhere close to um, needing all of that additional capacity. Okay. So in workplaces, people with a travel history within 14 days are told not to come into the building for appointments. Should the contacts of those people who have travelled uh, also be told not to not to attend? No, it's a great question, and the answer is no. Um, so obviously. Um, it, this is all about levels of risk and, and um, you know, prior to the weekend, returning travellers um, were asked to self-isolate and they were trusted to do that. Um, again, I, I know a number of people that have been doing that and the cops have been checking on them every day, interestingly, sometimes in person, knocking on the door, sometimes on the phone. Um, so so that's, that's fine. Uh, contacts of those people it's it's safe to to consult with them um, and the same is true now after the mandatory uh, quarantine um, and, and essentially of course with mandatory quarantine um, there are no contacts in Australia of those people. Okay um, so Canada would seem to be the most comparable to Australia with I suppose with the exception of not sharing a border with the US is there anything we can glean from their situation or maybe from other countries? Yeah, I think there's a huge amount we can we can learn from um, all around the world. Um, so there's a number of different things going on, right? I mean, um, Hong Kong did an amazing job. Um, obviously, a border with mainland China. You know, there was every risk that Hong Kong would have been swamped uh, with COVID. It did not happen. I know Hong Kong very well. I go there regularly. I have many close friends up there. And, and Hong Kong had something like 100 cases. They, and why? Because they closed the border and they did strict 
case identification and contact tracing. And it's a small country, right? Um, however, uh, they now have 400 cases, and that is from returning travelers into Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has now shut its borders again, this time to all incoming travelers. That's a key lesson. Singapore's done a very similar thing. Singapore, a very orderly society, um, lots of preparation from SARS and MERS. Um, they went early, they uh, did the same thing, um, uh, case identification, uh, contact tracing, uh, etc. They've now had a, an, an uptick in cases, and again, it's returning travelers, so they've closed the borders, essentially. Um, the UK went too late, and they run the risk of being swamped. Uh, the US went way too late and had very poor testing. Um, they are only now doing stay at home in the last few days in, in some places. Uh, very, very significant problems, I think, emerging um, in the US. Uh, New Zealand, very interesting. They went straight to level four. So uh, middle of last week, they closed the border and everybody is staying at home. Very strict um, social distancing. And that strategy aims at epidemic suppression. They are going hard and fast to suppress the epidemic. Um, you can easily imagine with no new cases coming in that they can very quickly um, get to the situation of, of, of no or little local transmission. The problem then is when do you open the border? Do you, do you keep a closed system for, for, for how long? So I, I do know that the, the chief health officers in Australia are paying very close attention to everything that's happening all around the world. The intention here is to uh, control this epidemic as much as we can, to not have the health system overwhelmed uh, so that we can treat those people who do get seriously ill and as we've all seen, um, this has caused massive social and economic disruption. And the government is now trying to minimize the impact on that. Um, another question. So are skin extensions essential? Yeah, so we've had a few questions about skin cancer clinics and skin cancer services. Um, they're definitely essential in terms of the government's uh, regulations around all of this. All health and medical services are deemed essential. Uh, that's very clear in the, in the government's um, uh, press releases. If you also look at the law, um, and the law on these issues is at, occurs at state level, um, you'll find them in the State Government Gazette. It's very clear all health and medical services are essential and should continue. There is no reason or justification for any general practice care or service to be closed down, slowed down, withdrawn. Um, I would certainly be using the telehealth um, item numbers as much as uh, you can. Um, but again, as the Prime Minister, the Health Minister, and more importantly, Professor Michael Kidd, the Principal Medical Advisor, keeps saying, you know, in general practice, we need to do a lot of face-to-face -face consultation. And we should do that whenever we, we need to. And the key is just protecting ourselves, our patients, and our staff uh, as we go about doing that. But the, the, they are definitely essential services. 
Okay. Is it possible to recover the disease once infected and is it recurrent or not? So nobody knows, right? Because um, we're too early in the epidemic. But the, the view from everybody that knows about these things um, is that um, once you've had it, you will become immune and you are very unlikely to be reinfected. That is the opinion from the expert immunologists and virologists and infectious disease people. Um, so we expect immunity to occur and to be quite uh, persistent. Um, but, you know, we, we have to wait and see. Okay, beautiful. Um, so one question around the use of, uh, I suppose, all the hand sanitizer use. I mean, is there any risks you'd be charged with DUI from excessive sanitization? <laughs> now, look, I think we're all getting used to washing our hands a lot. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that when we do come through this thing, in whenever that is, um, I rather suspect we'll all be really good at washing our hands, and so we should be. And I rather suspect we'll all become very good at social distancing. And, and in future flu uh, pandemics, um, you know, I think we, we're likely to see, um, you know, fewer cases just because we all take a lot more care about those really important, um, those really important personal and professional hygiene practices. Yeah. So another question, is it not true that the only clinical trials of treatment sanctioned by the WHO to do with antivirals only, not some of the other medications touted in the press? No, there are multiple clinical trials of, uh, of many different medications um, underway. Um, they don't have to be sanctioned by WHO. WHO is running one very large trial. Um, but there are there are multiple trials for anybody that's interested in that. You can look at the clinical trial registries. Uh, all clinical trials are registered, and there are multiple uh, trials underway uh, testing different anti antivirals and, and other things. Okay, how infectious are asymptomatic patients? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So uh, again, the the honest answer is we just don't know yet. Um, what is becoming clear is that um, this thing has a very wide spectrum of symptomatology uh, ranging from um, uh, no symptoms at all um, through to very mild symptoms through to you know pretty severe flu and then of course hospitalization is due to a viral pneumonia and then acute respiratory distress, re respiratory failure and death in some cases. So that's the sort of disease spectrum. Um, I think that it's, there is more and more evidence being published to indicate that uh, asymptomatic patients carry the virus. We know that's the case. Um, if you're carrying the virus, you will be shedding the virus. How much, who knows? Um, so I, my view is asymptomatic patients um, will be infectious, but they will be of limited infectiousness. So uh, if I have no symptoms, but I'm carrying the virus, I am much less dangerous to you than if I'm symptomatic and coughing and sneezing and puffing and blowing. Um, so in the, the short version of that is it's just like any other viral infection that way. Okay. 
So what's the stance legally with medical certification requested by a number of bosses to allow workers that have the UITI and not swabbed back into the workforce? So people that do have the urinary tract infection. Uh, well, I would only issue a sick certificate. I understand the pressure that colleagues get put under, but I would only uh, be issuing a sickness certificate if I was completely sure um, about the criteria that I was issuing them for. Um, and, and I think that if you feel that it's inappropriate, then uh, just try your very best to resist the pressure that's going on you um, in, in, in that regard. I mean, the reality is, uh, at this stage of this epidemic, anybody with upper respiratory tract symptoms needs to be considered to have, uh, or be at risk of having coronavirus. So if you have upper respiratory tract infect, um, symptoms, you should be at home self-isolating until those symptoms go away. Okay. There's a few questions related to this, and I think you may have answered the question, but I'll, once again, I'm sort of reading and listening at the same time. So it's around how many tests needed to confirm full recovery? Do we need to retest after two weeks in positive cases? Um, and how long a period can we wait uh, to recover once infected? Yeah, so the simple answer there is if, if anybody tests positive, then once they are um, asymptomatic, they would be considered uh, non-infectious. And, and you don't need to retest them. Okay, awesome. Um, and what sort of chemical cleaning solutions should we be used for cleaning? Uh, look, I think um, you know the standard disinfectant around the place is 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 quite adequate. Whatever you normally use in your clinics or or your household um, is quite adequate. Um, this is not a special you know virus. Um, it does last for hours or even days on different surfaces so certainly keeping surfaces clean um, you know some practices are um, uh, you know doing common common the, the, the benches and the common surfaces uh, every hour uh, that kind of thing um, that that's 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 the way to go just follow, follow use them use the uh, the advice on the on the uh, health.gov.au website yep and I suppose some of these are comments, I suppose, but you know, I note that the testing criteria up to this point required travel or contact. Doesn't does that not distort the figures? Just the amount of community spread? Um, it definitely distorts the figures. Um, they've they've recently widened the uh, criteria now, um, but in terms of um, having an idea of of how many cases there really are out there, um, absolutely, that's correct. So we can be pretty sure that we're capturing the deaths uh, from COVID. Of course, anybody with anything like COVID is being tested. Um, so we, we know that number, um, but there will be many more cases than we have tested. There's no doubt about that. Um, I did look at the, the numbers earlier today, um, and there is, the you know, there are hundreds of thousands of tests have been done and the prevalence of infection at the moment is about 0.2%. So, um, and it has to be lower than that because 
as the questioner rightly says, we are biasing the testing towards uh, symptomatic patients. So the prevalence in the community is really, really, really low at the moment. Um, and what's the sensitivity and specificity of COVID testing? I mean, how confident can we be that a negative is actually a true negative? Oh, I think I think very confident with the nasopharyngeal swab. Um, you know that is PCR test, um, so has incredibly high sensitivity and specificity. I mean, as we all know, nothing is absolutely a hundred percent, but that kind of testing is as good as it gets. Um, we'll have to see what the rapid tests do. Um, but, you know, the TGA is going to approve something that they don't reckon is, is working the way we need it to. And, um, you know, we will, we will all see that data before we, start using, uh, we, before we start using the tests. Okay, just a few more and then we'll be done. Um, oxygen concentrator can be used yeah. at home or not to save a patient's life. I, I, difficult for me to think of a scenario when you might need it, but if you have an acutely distressed patient and who needs oxygen, then yeah, whatever it takes, right? Um, mm. We do know that, that some patients progress very quickly um, with, with their symptoms and their, their course of illness. But I think, um, you know, if, if we've got somebody with acute respiratory distress, they need oxygen. We, we would use whatever we, we had while we were waiting for the ambulance, right? Yeah. And just with reinfection rates, obviously China's the early leader in this, and there's obviously been some media reports around a 13% reinfection rate. Have you got any information on that? Yeah, I haven't seen that data. Uh, I mean, um, we know that there are more and more cases coming into China, but again, they are returning uh, patients. Uh, I, I haven't seen data on previously infected patients becoming reinfected, um, but, but certainly we are seeing a second wave of infection in China, the same in Singapore, the same in Hong Kong, and you would expect that to happen in any country um, until we get herd immunity or a vaccine, uh, that will always be, be a risk. Um, the key thing there is um, working to make sure that the number of cases in the second wave is quite low so that the health system can treat those patients who, who require it. It is worth just mentioning here in terms of putting things in perspective. Um, just I was looking at some numbers over the weekend out of interest. You know, in the United States, each year, 55,000 people die from flu. Okay, 55,000 people a year in the US die from flu. In Italy, where, as we all know, COVID is causing terrible uh, trouble, uh, they have a very significant problem with flu most years. And in a bad year in Italy, um, they can have up to 43,000 deaths in a population of 60 million. So, you know, the, 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 the intent with COVID is to get the numbers well below the numbers of flu. That's, that's what everybody is trying to do here.
Okay. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you very much, David. And I really appreciate everyone's participation today. I know we've gone 10 minutes over what we meant to. Uh, but look, the, the goal is, is that every week we're going to be doing an update. As I said, it's rapidly changing and obviously new papers being published every day. Uh, and we'll obviously appreciate, David, your time for disseminating that information and sharing it with us and answering the questions. So I want to thank you for your time and thank everybody for participating. Uh, and just a reminder on Thursday, for those of you that own medical practices that may be going under a little bit of a challenging time, uh, we've got a gentleman by the name of Alan Milt, who's a world expert in managing cash flow. Um, so we have a webinar on Thursday evening where he'll be going through and showing how to manage cash flow. And he's also got a great um, online web tool, which you can basically put six numbers into it and it'll map out your cash flow for the foreseeable short term. So it's definitely as the challenges you know come, because you know ultimately if we have patients who don't want to come in and yes, we're going to be doing bulk billing, bulk billing teleconsults, but it'll be interesting to see what the take-up rate is. And also, you know, we have to bulk bill those services to be able to access those item numbers. You know, what impact will that have on a practice? So if you are a practice owner, I would suggest you would be very wise to join us on Thursday evening. Otherwise, we'll be back at this time next week uh, with David's further update. So thanks very much for your time today, David.